Hello everybody, thank you very much for downloading this week's episode of the Cinema Catch-Up Club. This is just to let you know that the Cinema Catch-Up Club has an official Patreon page. If you'd like to become an official member of the club and get some bonus goodies, including early access material and bonus features only available to our patrons, then please join up at patreon.com forward slash ccuc podcast. And now, for this week's episode. Hello everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Catch-Up Club, the podcast for films that you probably should have seen by now. I'm your host, Stephen Platt. Thank you very much for downloading this week's episode. And this week, just because there's COVID-19 around doesn't mean we can't have Star Wars Day. Yes, that's right. We're coming up on May the 4th. May the 4th be with you all. And we are going to review another Star Wars film. We finished the original trilogy last year. So the question is, where do we go next? The answer is to 1999 and The Phantom Menace. That's right, episode one, baby. We're in prequel town. Woo! Or boo, depending on your opinion. Uh, Joining me as always, we have someone who has seen the film and someone who has not. Our guest who has not seen the film and back on the podcast for the first time in two years, it's Aaron Vanderclay! Oh my God, has it really been two years? It really has. I I looked it up um, the other day because I was like, I've not had Aaron on in ages and then I went through the, the database and I went, I've, I've not had him on in two years and I feel really bad. So wow. my apologies for not rostering you on sooner, Aaron. How have you been? I've been good. I've been been occupied. I haven't been doing as much filmmaking and I haven't obviously clearly <laughs> been watching many films. So, um, but no, I'm happy to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me back. Oh, it's lovely. It's lovely to have you back. And you have not seen The Phantom Menace. No, I have not. I um I have a really interesting relationship with Star Wars. When I was a kid, I used to obviously like Doctor Who and Star Trek, and people used to find it very odd that I'd never seen Star Wars. Um, and uh, yeah, so when the new film came out, the, sorry, the first new film, The Force Awakens, my uh, partner at the time was like, you should watch all, all the originals, and we did, and I really enjoyed them, and I really liked the new films, and Rogue One is probably like one of my favourite films of all time and I never got around to watching the prequels so this is ticking it off the list so I'm excited. Excellent just making a note here for the ongoing uh, Rogue One war which will happen when we eventually get to that film Aaron pro Rogue One um, and for long for new listeners we have a lot of uh, conjecture about Rogue One it seems to be the Star Wars film that people either love or hate Aaron very much on the the Loving It side, and joining him also on The Loving It side is our guest who has seen this film. It's Dr. Sarah Curtis, everybody. Hello. Uh, Dr. Sarah, uh, how are you doing in this uh, strange, fun, quarantine land of ours? Well, I've just dyed my hair for the second time this week, so I'm not sure if that's any sort of indication of um, my the state of my health. Uh, I'm actually doing pretty well. Um, thank you for asking. How are you doing, Stephen? Me? Um, I'm doing pretty good because I have a PhD to finish. So I was self-isolating anyway. Uh, but yes, I'm, I'm just currently writing chapters for that and getting that ready. But what I would like to ask you right now, Sarah, in a vague non-spoilery sort of way, what can people like Aaron and others who have not seen The Phantom Menace expect from The Phantom Menace? Um, you can expect midichlorians. Mm-hmm. You can expect... Um lots of flag waving 
-hmm. you can expect the best lightsaber duel slash music to go with a battle duel scene ever. Mm -hmm. um, oh, it's another non-spoilery thing I can say. Well, um, I you can expect Kira Knightley. Oh yes, yes. There's uh, there's quite a few actors in this. Uh, when I was going back and looking at the cast list, in it as a pilot. Yeah, he's in it for like half a hot second. So that's nice. Um, I still don't, I still can't pick him, but you know, maybe this time. Maybe, maybe when he is peeking behind a door and then just slowly backs away like he does as Thor in Oak and Shield. <laughs> we'll spot him then. Um, before before we continue, Sarah, best lightsaber fight. You, you're saying this this film has yeah. the best one. I think so. I mean, I'm trying to think to all the other films. Uh, obviously, mm. I'm a long-time Star Wars fan. Mm. Um, I grew up on the original trilogy, um, as I'm sure we've all heard, since I think I was the, the guest who's seen it for the first two that we did. Mm -hmm. um, although you skipped me for the last one. Um, other people have to overturn, Sarah. That's how it goes. <laughs> no. It's <laughs> just me. It is my Star Wars. Um, you know. Um, so I, you know, I've, I've grown up on it and, um, you know, I was, how old was I when this film came out? I must have been in 1999, seven years old. Right. So um, you, you were arguably like the right age for a new hmm. Star Wars film when this came out. I was definitely the right age. So I enjoyed it sort of as a kid. Like I, I liked the kid stuff that they put in. Um, I never liked, um, the big race scene. I'm not going to say any more than that. Okay. Um, but I hated that scene. So I'm sure I'll get to talk all about that later. Um, but yeah, I think because of my love for music and the way that that promotes emotions, what they did with that particular scene, um, I look forward to every time. It makes the entire film worth it, despite the midichlorians. Okay, well, I think uh, there's nothing more to say than we should watch the film. So, guys, Shall we watch The Phantom Menace? Let's do it. Yeah, let's. All right, for those of you listening at home, uh, load up those streaming services and always know that there's a bigger fish as we prepare to watch Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Welcome back, everybody. We have just finished watching Star Wars Episode One, The Phantom Menace. And by we, I, of course, mean Dr. Sarah Curtis. Hello. And Aaron Vanderclay. Hello. I wish I was a doctor. That's not fair. <laughs> Aaron, I, I, was rolling, I was rolling for a few titles to give you. Uh, would you accept Admiral? <laughs> yes. It's a trap. Carry on. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, uh, Admiral Vanderclay, uh, that was your first time watching the Phantom Menace. What did you think? I think I was really expecting it to be a lot similar to the original sort of films because I think the new films are more in that style. Mm -hmm. um, we were sort of talking like even about like the production design of, of this film. It, it, it's like Star Wars but made in the 90s and I think that whole vibe uh, carries through the whole film. It's like George Lucas was like, oh my God, all these things that I wanted to do in the original films, now I can do. I have CG robots and all these characters and prosthetics and CGI ships and model effects and just smushed into one big thing. Mm. Um, 
so yeah, I was I was expecting, I guess, the sort of charm of the the later films, I guess, but it was very different. Different, um, good or different, not good. It, I, I suppose it's kind of the question that everyone wants to know from someone that sees a prequel for the first time. Yes. Um, were the original films really political? Um, or like, I mean, vaguely. The, yeah, I mean, the, the the very first film, on the one hand, is kind of like a classic hero with a thousand faces, Arthurian legend, but could also be seen as a young member of a country or territory that's been radicalised against a foreign oppressor and ends up committing a massive act of terrorism. It could be viewed through a political lens. Um, but I, I get what you mean. Uh, Rewatching this one, the thing that surprised me, because I realised I hadn't watched this film since I was probably about maybe 17, 18, like it's been more than a decade since I've watched this yeah. one. And I found myself going, oh yes, no, trade disagreements. This makes sense. Uh, as opposed to when I first watched it as like a nine-year-old going, what are those weird fish aliens talking about? I want to see Darth Maul again. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's like, I was expecting more adventure. Like I think they say that like the originals are like supposed to be like a soap opera in space and it wasn't, it wasn't like that. It was a bit intellectual and then it just had cool scenes. It was, there was an odd balance between that. Whereas I think the, the, the older films are perhaps a bit more like space adventure. There was less space adventure. There was cool stuff mm. and like a, like a car chase sequence and, and lightsaber battles and space battles and things like that. But then it was also a heavy wallop of long council scenes with people sitting around listening to one person talking and it was it was yeah different very different mm. um sarah this is your first time watching this film in a little while i imagine yeah i tend to not watch it very often mm. um how was it revisiting the phantom menace though look it was good fun it reminded me how much of a star wars nerd i am it kind of brought me back to my childhood um and um because like i used to play the games um, where, you know, you'd get your armies and you'd, you know, you'd have the invasion of Thede and, you know, you'd have to go find the Gungans and you'd, you know, repel the droids and things like that. So I kind of had a lot of flashbacks to playing those Star Wars games um, with my brother. We did that a lot together to the point where our, um, our gaming names uh, are both Star Wars based and um, I still use, we actually, we both still use our handles um, from the time when we, when I was seven, because mm -hmm. um, he, uh, Thrawn's big bro, of course, um, Admiral Thrawn, mm -hmm. uh, which everyone knows about, uh, and mine, which is even more popular, um, was uh, the Emperor's Hand, of course, Mara Jade Skywalker being my favourite mm -hmm. uh, of all the characters. So it was kind of bringing me back to that nostalgia a little bit. Um, and, you know, watching, you know, how pretty it was. I keep forgetting how pretty this film is. This is a very pretty film. Um, obviously, the the planet Naboo, uh, drawing lots of inspiration from sort of European Renaissance art and architecture. Um, but the, the costume design uh, in particular stands out so much in this film, not even just the stuff that Queen Amidala's wearing, um, although that we could just discuss that by itself for about 20 minutes. But the, the, the aesthetic of this film, I think is something that I'd forgotten, is actually quite strong. Um, mm -hmm. it, it, it has a very definite identity. 
that is separate from the original Star Wars trilogy. And I really appreciate the fact that this film shows that utopia that was lost through the empire coming to power. And that was a huge um, directorial choice because I know that George Lucas was really excited about the costumes. I went to an exhibit in New York in 2015 that was the Star Wars costumes exhibit. And it was mostly costumes from this film because they're the most extravagant. And it sort of was looking at how long it took to make them all and you know how much input he had in the design process, which was a lot. And it kind of reminds you that as a director, um, you know, he has a fantastic, image and design quality terrible writer um and the editing um saved him you know when other people edited and you know the music saved him in a lot of ways and made these films good but um yeah his design is impeccable absolutely um aaron um obviously you you're quite well versed in um star wars from a more recent perspective um how how does this one, I suppose, stack up in terms of that look? Obviously, the the CGI which was being used, some of which has has obviously become quite dated in the twenty plus years since it first aired. But but does the sort of general look uh, hold up for you as a new viewer? I think one of the things we were commenting on during it was that yeah, it 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 does come across very dated. The style comes across very dated in terms of what the future's supposed to, well, not future, but whatever that society, it's, it's technology looks like. It, it's mm-hmm. a lot of like circular patterns and, and whereas the sort of 70s version is very square and boxy and they carry that through the new films, which gives it its own sort of classic style. Even the costumes, the, the type of collars and, and buckles and things like that, that it, it honestly is like, they were like, wow, we're in the 90s, let's 90 this shit up. Mm-hmm. And whereas now they sort of like, oh, you know, that was the quintessential time, the 70s, we're going to bring that back. Even the buttons in the, in the ships and stuff like that. I know there's no sort of Millennium Falcon in this film, but the, the technology is like, it's completely different from screens and things like that. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think... I think it does work, um, and I am trying to think of another positive thing about this film because I think it is <laughs> it is good to start positively. But yeah. but for me, I think that is the thing that really stands out. And th- th- look, there are good bits about this film. Um, you know, I, I, again, I think it comes down to design. But I think that Darth Maul is a very good aspect of this film in terms of his his aesthetic, at the very least. Yeah, uh, he, it's a, he's a sexy villain. It is like, yeah, it's chic. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah, he's, um, he, he certainly is a, it's a look, uh, but it's, but it's, but it is a really strong uh, look and it suits being the villain. And it, it almost suits the fact that I think Star Wars is at its best when it moves away from dialogue. And it's not to say that there hasn't been good dialogue in Star Wars, but I think the visual storytelling that, Star Wars has achieved through its fight sequences and through its space vistas, I think is when it does really well. When I think across the Star Wars films of those most striking elements, it's usually visual. It's um, it's in, for example, in The Last Jedi, when uh, a certain 
uh, maneuver is pulled off um, to save a certain group of uh, rebels, which um, I'm just not touching on in case anyone hasn't seen that film yet. But it's visually stunning what they do, and that sticks with me. Similarly, in Rogue One, when a certain um, someone turns up at the end of the film and we get reminded why they're so powerful. Uh, it, 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 it's those moments that really stand out. Um, and again, I, I, I even wrote the messages that we were having during this. The best bit of this film is a door opening. It's the door opening when Darth Maul stood behind it and the music going, ho, ho, da, 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 but, you know, with instruments. Um, it's... That's <laughs> is a beautiful piece of music. Mm. But... Like that, that, you could spend hours just talking about that piece. Yeah, and it, it is great. And I think that when The Phantom Menace is at its best, it's when it's leaning into those elements which are i guess more ubiquitously star wars um it, it is that visual storytelling yeah uh, i think um, they've also they've made a very conscious decision to pack this with like wally like it's not they're like we've done that we need to to up the ante and make it different and like sarah was saying at the start before we, we started there was the really cool lightsaber battle and it's not one person against another person really slow. It's two people against someone that's got a double-pronged lightsaber and it's quick and it's fast mm. and it's it's captivating. And, um, yeah, things like that that make take it to the next level. It's not what you're expecting. It's better. Yeah. Now, Sarah... I think they you, did that well. You have training in uh, lightsaber combat. Yes, I do. Um, do you actually, Sarah? <laughs> it was a very long time ago, but yes. <laughs> Do you have a lightsaber? <laughs> I do. It no longer works though because okay. someone borrowed it for a, a film shoot and then like lost the power. So like I've still got it, but it doesn't power up. It was purple. Uh, you can't mm. say that anymore though, sadly. But the reason I bring up your expertise in this is because I think that this film, in in terms of its wider impact on sort of Star Wars culture, is that lightsaber fight feels like the first time a lightsaber fight was frenetic. Yeah, and that's because of the, the style they used. So in the original series, they used um, some very more basic styles, particularly in um, A New Hope. Um, that was very like two old men kind of like chopping at each other and, you know, not much. Uh, in this film, they, um, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan use Form 4, which is Ataru, um, which is very athletic. It's, it's uh, aggressive, uses jumps and flips and that sort of thing. Um, and Darth Maul uses Form 7, which I forget what it's called, but, you know, it's really cool. Um, and um, so later on, Obi-Wan uses this fight to learn, um, teach himself Form 3, um, because that sort of works a bit better against the Sith um, and is a bit more unexpected because it's a lot harder. Uh, I am trained in Form 1, which is Shicho, which is really basic <laughs> because okay. that's a do i can't do backflips and shit like that okay but it, yeah I, I thought it was just interesting that all of the star wars films after this the fighting style is much more like this particular fight it is that fast frenetic stuff you know in the more recent films with when you've got kylo ren and ray and everyone else that uses lightsabers in those films it is that quicker very stylish uh, sort of look. Slightly less flips, I'd say. I think there was a lot more flipping in, in this. In different forms. The yeah. flipping is, is a taru. And okay. um, it's what Yoda uses uh, in the next episode as well. Yeah. Because he's like, that flips everywhere with his little, you know, not a puppet anymore, CGI. Mm. All right. Well, 
Uh, we've managed to talk for at least 10 minutes, I would say in a relatively positive way about The Phantom Menace. So well done, everyone. Um, now, I feel that we have to talk about a lot of the rest of the film. Um, and uh, the main thing watching this film, um, and Aaron, obviously you're the first time watcher, so it's going to be really interesting to hear your perspective on this. I don't actually think The Phantom Menace is that bad a film. I just think it's a really uneven film in terms of its pacing, in terms of its writing. Yeah. It feels as though we hit chunks of really quite good stuff and then really thin gruel connecting it. I agree. I think um, it started to get interesting maybe three quarters of the way through and then it sort of died off at the end, mm. I would say. Um, yeah, it it was very, very uneven. And, and like I said, at the start, those, those bits of sort of political stuff really feel very disjointed. It's like, wait, let's throw in an action sequence, let's throw in a car chase and throw in a fight. And, and then all the action-y stuff that we sort of know from Star Wars where they're escaping the base and, you know, whatever, that, that was the interesting part. Hmm. And that was all the way at the end. Yeah, so one of those bits that kind of stuck out for me this time is being like, what is this doing here? is is the fish sequence is the sailing through the planet's core um I, it does give us the line there's always a bigger fish but <laughs> i don't know that that's worth what this sequence is which no. i i so, i sort of get the idea of going take the concept of like a spacecraft and it, it's essentially trying to do the episode five asteroid worm thing where you've got a big creature and you've got a ship flying around it and putting it in water is an interesting angle but it it just felt really odd, and I can't quite put it my finger on doesn't why. Doesn't really add anything to it. Yeah, I've got really. storytelling theory about what it might add. I don't think it does it well enough to actually do this. But what they okay. were possibly attempting to do was set up two things, which was uh, the Jedi using the Force um, because they were able to navigate their way through the core, which is really dangerous apparently, mm. um, and of course calming down Jar Jar a bit much, which set up the pod race later on. Mm. Um, and the other thing that they were setting up was that the Gungans were in this world and therefore had to be martial. They had to be warriors in order to survive in this society underwater with all these monsters. Mm. Now, they didn't actually do that very well, uh, but that's the only reason I can think of to have that scene from a storytelling perspective. Yeah. Um, the Gungans themselves... I think are, are kind of cool as well on, on paper at the very least. The idea of having a sort of secret army almost that the, the, the people of Naboo can kind of call upon to, to create that kind of diversionary thing. And also the whole, this planet has got two people living on it and they're together and that's a, that's a nice thing. Like I, I, I kind of like those ideas on paper. It's kind of undercut by the way that the Gungans are presented. Um, one being that they're, very early CGI, and yeah. it, it doesn't hold up for me, I'm afraid. Um, it's, it, it, it's just the details aren't quite there. There's a real strange quality to it. Um, and then, of course, there's also the fact that it's really hard to understand what they're saying. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, it is quite jarring, one would say. <laughs> um, <laughs> even even the sort of sequence at the end where they're sort of putting together that battalion and they've got like cannonballs and things like that because they're presented so 
perform, or perhaps Jar Jar is mostly presented so comically, mm. or he comes across very comical. That comes across a bit, a bit pathetic in a way. Yeah. And it's like, is this really in this film? Like, to be honest, I looked up at one point and was like, is this happening? <laughs> <laughs> Does it do any good? Like, mm. uh, look, yeah. I have one good thing to say about the the Gungans and the animation, and it has nothing to do with this film. Okay. Um, so basically, um, around this time in 1999 was when I'm going to bring this back to Lord of the Rings. Of um, they started um, working on the Lord of the Rings, and they were um, trying to. They're doing some preliminary um, CG, and they were struggling a little bit with Gollum. Um, so a couple of the animators went over to the ranch um, to meet with George Lucas's team um, because they'd just seen some of the stuff from this film uh, and they ran through a few CG ideas, took all the good stuff and then completely rewrote stuff and improved it and created what we now see as you know everything that's come from the Lord of the Rings when it comes mm. to CGI and that sort of stuff which is you know completely changed the face of film going forward so they contributed oh absolutely i mean there was nothing like this when it was released in terms of having such a large scale of computer generated imagery uh, being involved in the storytelling of this film um i just think it's it's undercut in that the story it was telling wasn't particularly well told. And I think that that partly is the reason why people look so negatively upon this film and upon the jarring character, which we have to discuss, Mr. Jar Jar Binks. Um, Aaron, I'm really curious about what you actually knew about Jar Jar prior to heading into this film. I did know that he was not very well liked. I know that the actor copped a lot of flack for it. Mm. Um, and I actually remember watching a very sad documentary or mini short film about his experiences and that was quite disturbing. Um, so yeah, so I kind of went in with, with that in mind, but it wasn't, I think what was frustrating about it was that he was quite difficult to understand. Mm. And it was hard to work out whether anything he really mattered to the story. And I think that with, with the focus on, maybe it's because I'm a filmmaker, but that the CGI was not 100% mm. or the eye lines were not 100% or the, the textures in the different environments, daylight sort of didn't work with him. Mm. I was so focused on that that I kind of didn't worry about him in the larger part of the story. Mm. Um, so yeah, but I didn't, I didn't hate it. It just was mm. jarring. Yeah, it, 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 does, it does seem as though, perhaps, and I don't know if I'm being controversial in saying this, that Star Wars fans maybe overreact sometimes. Uh, about, about <laughs> no I would say that, yeah. <laughs> um, it, I don't think that's limited to Star Wars fans, but yes. <laughs> no, but they, they in particular do seem to have a, a real, um, a real uh, knack for it. Look, Jar Jar is a bit annoying. Um, I, I can acknowledge that. When I, when I first watched this film as a nine-year-old, I bloody loved him. I thought he was dead funny. He had all them silly voices and, you know, oh, look, he numbed his tongue in the pod race beam. Oh, isn't that hilarious? Watching him now as someone who's in their 30s and has maybe, maybe matured a tiny bit from them, um, I, I can see that, that Jar Jar, because he's a hard to understand, 
because he doesn't really do much for the story, he, he essentially acts as the conduit between Queen Amidala and the Gungan government, essentially. It's just like, oh, you're Gungan, you can get us in. I'm technically an exile, but whatever. Like, it's, it, it does feel as though the rest of what he's there for is is to be a clown basically is yeah. to is to make that laughter and to make um to make people enjoy what he does because he is just kind of doing the pratfalls and that would have been brilliant if it had worked but i just think that the tone that that was set in this film it it just didn't jive it felt like they just pulled a character from another film and thrown him in with very serious qui-gon jinn and obi-wan kenobi yeah it's he's a bit comic relief it's funny, actually, because I, when I was watching this, my dad walked in and he was like, oh, this film's very Disney, isn't it? And I was like, well, this is pre-Disney. Like, you've sort of got a kid who's the hero and then you've got this sort of odd character. So it's, yeah, it, it does have, maybe it's the start of the Disney era and they didn't even know. Yeah, Michael Eisner was watching this going, hang on a second, we've got an idea. Um, I just had a question, actually. Yes. In terms of like, I've seen that one of the comments they made was that Jar Jar Binks was, was perhaps just for marketing purposes. It was to sell toys. Mm. I was just wondering when you guys, when you guys first watched this, when this came out, was there a lot of like merchandise with Jar Jar on it? That I think so. Yeah, but, I think mm. it was pretty much all Jar Jar. When I, when I, because I was in the UK. Um, when this film came out, one of the things that I really wanted in terms of as like a toy was there was this like Jar Jar head that had like a sticky Jar-Jar. tongue that when you like squeezed his head, the tongue jumped out and you could like grab things with it. And I just remember thinking that was super cool. I could probably look it up now and find that it's just a piece of trash, but but there was, it might be the, worth millions. It, and it could be as well. Um, but yeah, it was one of those things where I was like, oh, that seems really cool. The other bit of merchandise that I really remember, aside from double-sided lightsaber, um, was yes. um, the, the droids, the actual droid soldiers, like figurines of, of them. I, I remember them. And that partly could just be because they themselves, aesthetically, were unlike much that we'd seen in a film, particularly on that scale, with them all coming out of the ship and unfolding like it's an Apple launch event. It's just, um, it's, it is remarkable. Um, but yeah, Jar Jar, he was, a, he was a big part of it. Obviously, once they discovered people didn't necessarily like him that much, they kind of pulled back on that. But I, I certainly remember it being a big, um, a big part of it. What about you, Sarah? Yeah, I mean, I was a bit younger, so I, um, you know, wasn't really watching the merchandise, I don't think, because I, you know, we didn't really go in for that sort of thing, I suppose. We couldn't really afford it. So, you know, we were, it was known that, you know, you get that one toy and you don't beg and whine for anything else. So we didn't, I didn't really look. Um, But also as a kid, I hated Jar Jar. Um, I was on the on the hatred train, I'm afraid, as a seven or eight year old, mm. um, mostly because I felt like I was being pandered to. And as a kid, the thing I hated the most was when adults pandered to kids and they looked down and said, oh, you're going to love this. Um, that would just make me so pissed. Mm. So, you know. Well, that apparently I love being pandered to. So, uh, leash. Uh, but yes, um, it, yeah, it's. It it is interesting looking looking back at that and seeing how um, how that has 
just it just hasn't aged and uh, obviously it hasn't aged well um and obviously um ahmed best who played jar jar had a very horrible time after this film of course and um yeah you know went through stuff that that he shouldn't have much in the same way that sadly jake lloyd did as well who plays anakin in this and um aaron you were saying uh watching this film that there was some pretty good child acting from from little jake lloyd i thought i thought he was great and i also appreciate the fact that he's a lot younger he's not that like wesley crusher nerd mm. kind of thing that seemed to annoy a lot of like fanboys at that time it's like you wanted to be on screen but you didn't want to be the nerd on screen and i don't think he was that i thought he was cute and he was clever for the age that he was and you know he was in a spaceship but it's not like he knew how it worked altogether he was sort of making it up as he went along Mm. but he like he was an intelligent kid and you know he, he didn't go straight away to be a jedi he sort of had to take a long way to get to the training part which we didn't obviously see uh, at the end of this film so it's we never... <laughs> i mean that that is interesting that yeah he's he's sort of like do you want to be a jedi i guess i mean i kind of want to get my mom out of you know slavery as well that'd be nice it, it is interesting that he isn't just standing on a hill with his fist bunched up going one day i'll be a jedi it's just like oh yeah cool i'm a jedi great um yeah. It, it yeah he's he's interesting and and obviously watching this film sarah um Everyone who knows a thing about Star Wars knows that Anakin Skywalker becomes Darth Vader. And Does yeah, sorry Wait, to what? sorry to break that to you guys. Um, but but knowing that, I mean, it was in the marketing of the fact that like you know there was that poster where it's like a him, but the shadow is in the shape of Darth Vader up against the wall and things like that. It's it, it was very much like you know watch the birth of the Antichrist, and you sort of. I don't know about you, Sarah, but I don't actually feel that he really, he didn't really communicate the um, the desperation that Hayden Christensen would later communicate in the subsequent films. It almost felt as though the film was going, look, this kid's going to be Darth Vader. Look at him. Look at him. But I, that was kind of it. It kind of just felt like it was a bunch of the Jedis going, ah, oh, he's too old. And if he's, he's too old, he'll turn evil. That's how it goes. If you've got to be good, you've got to be young. That kind of feels like what the message was. I have a huge issue with the Jedi um, and their entire stance. Uh, I'm not sure how clearly that came across in our messages back and forth. Um, yeah, I may have ranted a little bit because the way they treat Anakin and the way they treat each other is incredibly unhealthy. They, they train him basically to you know, repress his emotions as a kid who was born into slavery. Um, so he's already going to be pretty messed up. He has to leave the one person he loves most out of everyone in the universe, galaxy, whatever, his mother, um, and just forget about her and leave her in slavery. And then on top of that, he's told that he's the chosen one. Everyone goes on about how important he is. So of course he's going to get a big ego about that but they don't actually help him. They don't send him to therapy. They don't try to free the slaves. They don't do anything to help him. They just stand there with their arms crossed and go, there's nothing we can do. You're going to be a little shit one day. You're going to turn evil. Oh, guess this is not our problem. Mm. Uh, so yeah, I hate the Jedi and everything they stand for. Mm. Or sit for, as it is in this film, because they <laughs> do a lot of just sitting around. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, that is really interesting. And the, the other 
interesting thing with Anakin uh, and with this film, and maybe the thing that this film is hated for even more than Jar Jar, is the introduction of midi chlorians, um, uh, which you just rolled your eyes at because uh, we're on video. I can see that. Uh, Aaron, <laughs> this was your first time watching the film. Did the midi chlorians thing jump out at you as being really odd, having seen obviously the original trilogy? Or did it feel like perhaps it was like, oh, that's an interesting way of explaining what the force is? Um, to be honest, I didn't pick up on it <laughs> much, if at all. There was one conversation when they talked about it, I think, towards the end, and I was like, oh, wait, what? And But sure, it didn't, didn't bother me. <laughs> okay, that's, that, really that, that, that's interesting, because I, I sort of feel that way a little bit as well, but my thinking is very much like I, I I like Star Wars, but I wasn't a huge Star Wars fan as a kid, uh, or indeed as an adult who then maybe went and saw this film and got disappointed that it was undercutting the point of the Force being, you know, based on belief and mysticism, I guess, to an extent. Yeah, um, yeah it sort of uh, makes it a bit more factual and scientific. Yeah. Biological. But- it's fake yeah. science. It's fake news. Well, well, it kind of is, though. And, like, I, I get that it... I don't particularly like it because I kind of feel that it's got the Dragon Ball Z problem of, like, he's at level 9,000 or whatever it is. You know, it's kind of... It kind of just becomes almost, like, pointless number crunching, in a sense. They're, Whereas... over, they're trying to overcook it. Like, mm. they had the perfect explanation in the original film where, you know, he said that it's an energy that binds us and penetrates us and, you know, holds us together or whatever Obi-Wan mm. says. And that's enough, I think. If you start trying to put numbers to it and science to it, you start thinking through it more and you start poking holes in it, mm. um, which kind of goes against the whole it's an old religion kind of you know, thing and myth that they have in the original series. But of course, I'm coming from the perspective of someone who grew up on all the books. I read all the extended universe things back when they were actually canon. So, you know, I read all the Jedi Apprentice novels. I read, you know, hundreds of these books. And so I'm, and they explored the force well enough. And then suddenly there's this weird pseudoscience thing happening with a couple of throwaway lines. It was, yeah, it's just weird. Yeah. It does also feel a bit, weird in the film like it's almost as though george was like oh i really want to explain this quick we need a scene where it's kind of almost like um you know in the simpsons when troy mcclaw does the infomercials with billy and he's like well billy let me show you how beef is made that's kind of what it felt like where it's like mr qui-gon i've been wondering what are midi-chlorians it's it just felt so out of place and particularly as you say aaron it was quite near the climax like they were all preparing to go off you know, to fight in this big battle and they were probably expecting to not come out of it alive. And you've got, you know, this little infomercial wedged in for 30 seconds in the middle. It it it, it kind of reflects a lot of the rest of this film where the tone is just a bit off to an extent. Before we get on to the trivia, a um, couple of other things we have to touch on. Uh, was the pod race cool or not, Aaron? Uh, it was cool up until I realised that they had to do a second and third lap. (laughs) It was just very long drawn out. (laughs) I feel like that's more a problem with um, motor racing in general than it is with the way that scene was shot. Um, But I think he he managed to get, like, catch up what I thought extremely quickly. Mm. And then it it took several tens of minutes to... (laughs) 
<laughs> to end the race. Yeah. Um, but yes. It, it is a long sequence. Um, it, is, it is very long. And whilst it suffers a bit from the CGI, maybe not standing up to modern standards, I think the way that sequence was shot actually still holds up. I think it's a very well shot race sequence. Um, it, it reminded me, because we watched the film a couple of months back, uh, a lot of the chariot scene from Ben-Hur. And I think obviously it was trying to evoke that. It doesn't quite have the same stakes that the chariot race has in Ben-Hur, um, but it does, I think, tell kind of like an exciting sort of second act adventure spike um, really well. I feel like part of it actually was based on Ben-Hur. Because um, for fun, um, one Christmas, I watched all the um, behind-the-scenes documentaries and commentaries for all mm. the Star Wars films. And they did talk about Ben-Hur a bit you know, at that point. So mm. perhaps it was inspired. And the one other thing I just want to touch on, Aaron, is while we were doing our message chain, you picked up on the fact that you uh, didn't think that Queen Amidala was always Queen Amidala. Yes. Yeah, I just, there were some weird comments and I was like, hang on a minute, is this girl always with the queen when they're together? Like, or maybe she's, yeah, so I just assumed that she was like ducking off a bit Prince and Pauper style where she mm. becomes a sort of handmaiden, goes off for the adventures, and then she comes back and she's the queen. Um, but I, I didn't realise that she was a decoy. Um, so I was a little bit disappointed at the reveal. I thought that... It was sudden, very sudden, mm. and then all of a sudden it was like, oh, uh, this is my decoy, um, the real person, and it's like, oh, okay. And no one's like, oh my god, that's crazy. Yeah, it was almost well, like... Quite... Definitely exchanging coins in the background, and like, yep, nailed it. Yeah, yeah, quite gonna everyone looked at each other like, told you, like, like that kind of thing. And it, it makes me think that all those times when Liam Neeson's going like, the Queen doesn't need to know. He knows who he's saying it to, and he's just doing it to stir the pot. It's a little shit. Yeah. yeah. Um, Qui-Gon, I don't think, is a particularly good Jedi either on this particular watching. He, he's a bit of a renegade. Oh, yeah. He's a great Jedi. He's totally a great Jedi. Mm. And um, that comes out a lot in the books as well. He's actually a huge dick in the books to Obi-Wan. Right. So... While I like some of his philosophy, um, he's just a terrible person. <laughs> mm. Yes, well, with all that being said, we have some trivia uh, that has been gathered from IMDb. Would you guys like to hear some trivia about The Phantom Menace? Yes, please. The first bit of trivia regards Mr. Liam Neeson. He was apparently so eager to be in the film that he signed on without reading the script, um, which does make me wonder... Would he have signed on maybe if if he hadn't, if you know, if he had actually read it? Well, I mean, considering how much Alec Guinness hated Star Wars when he was in it, like you know, mm. maybe it is a, a scripting thing that he would have looked at and gone, maybe, maybe I shouldn't do this. Yeah. Although on the other hand, it's you know, you get to be in a Star War like that's. That's like, kind of... let's face it, I don't care what the script is. If I were given the opportunity to be in a Star War, I would take it. Hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely fair. Uh, during filming, Ewan McGregor used lightsaber noises um, while he duelled. Uh, he was making them uh, as he's, you know, standing there holding the thing going zoom, zoom, like that. Uh, George Lucas had to explain many times that they would be added in later uh, as a special effect. Ewan, uh, quote, said, I just kept getting carried away. And I really appreciate that. <laughs> 
Well, I like how that happened in um, The Last Jedi as well, when um, Holdo comes out um, with her gun and she goes, pew, pew, and you, you can watch her mouthing it. Yeah. Yeah. I, when you pointed that out to me for the first time, that's, that is all I see now. Every single time <laughs> is time. Just, just Holdo going pew, pew. In, in uh, the actual film? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a close-up shot of of Holdo, and yeah, she she is going pew like it's like she's holding it out, and you just see the mouth go pew like as she pulls the trigger. It's, I would do it, the same thing. Yeah, it's yeah, absolutely. I, I think it shows just how human people are, hackers are, hmm. just as excited as everyone else. Yeah, and you know, you get to be in a Star Wars film. Like, of course, you'd be going. I, you know, you wouldn't be surprised if someone's walking around doing the Darth Vader breathing just. <laughs> behind your shoulder it's like anthony daniels you're not allowed to do that oh let me dream (laughs) (laughs) um sets were built only as high as the tops of actors heads and computer graphics filled in the rest uh liam neeson was so tall that he cost the set crew an extra hundred and fifty thousand dollars in construction (laughs) i must admit i couldn't tell so Mm. that's good well done then it, it, I mean, that that stuff still generally looked okay. I'd say, like the, the even though it was at parts, it was like that's obviously a computer generated background. It didn't look out of place. Um, it, it kind of felt almost like we were in a kind of like dreamlike world in some respects. So yeah, and I certainly didn't notice like a weird join roughly at Liam Neeson's height in every scene. So, so that's good. Uh, when fully dressed and in makeup, Natalie Portman and Keira Knightley resembled each other so much that Keira Knightley's mother, uh, who was on set frequently, had trouble identifying which one was her daughter. So good. I love it. Mm. And it is really weird that they're two quite big acting names. So like over the, the years that, that, that followed, the fact that Keira Knightley, who is playing, you know, the stunt double to, to an extent, you know, she goes off and she's in bend it like Beckham and Pirates of the Caribbean and all these big things. Obviously, Natalie Portman goes on and becomes a really big, you know, Oscar-winning actress in her own right as well. It's just weird that you've got the two of them who are clearly quite similar in their look. In the Galactic Senate scene, when Queen Amidala is asking for a vote of no confidence and the whole Senate are on their feet shouting, you can see in the lower left corner the species of aliens from the movie E.T., Oh my god! Yeah, Aaron's... I need to go back and like. I should hopefully there's a video on YouTube where it's like Easter eggs. Oh, there stuff. is. I was I'm tempted to take a photo of that one and, and send it through. Yeah, no, Aaron. Aaron's uh, face when when he realised that was was quite amazing. Um, yeah, George Lucas included them as a tribute to Steven Spielberg, um, who obviously was a big help in his career. They have a big uh, connection things of that nature. Um, Also in the extended Star Wars universe, um, author James Luceno, I believe that's how it's pronounced, uh, fleshed out this group of aliens in his Star Wars novel, Cloak of Deception. Uh, They are from the planet Brodo Asogi, and they're represented by Senator Greblipis, which is Spielberg backwards. (laughs) So yeah, they do share a universe. So yeah, it's all all connected. E.T. is a Jedi. Uh, Benicio Del Toro was originally set to play Darth Maul in this film. Uh, Del Toro left the film after George Lucas took out most of Darth Maul's lines. Uh, Del Toro obviously would later appear in a Star Wars film. He plays DJ in Episode Eight: The Last Jedi, the stuttering. Um, 
I forget what his job is, but it's essentially to go, look, the good guys and the bad guys are the same. Like, like um, the hacker guy. Yeah. But yeah, he was, he was very nearly Darth Maul. And uh, don't know if Darth Maul with a stutter would have worked or not, or if he'd have gone with that same character affectation. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, Aaron, I, when I read this one, I had to include it. Uh, one of the spaceships seen briefly in the traffic flying around Coruscant is the Enterprise from Star Trek The Next Generation. Of course it is. Yeah, they, they hit a lid. And I'm pretty sure that at the same time when they made the Star Trek film First Contact, they had a Millennium Falcon, Falcon in um, a Borg battle scene. So oh, really? I'm pretty it's sure. Yeah. 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 I, just, I just love when they do these little things. They try and take little bits and throw them in and don't regard uh, intellectual property <laughs> rights at all. <laughs> It's like, this will be fine. They'll be cool with it. Um, Tupac Shakur, a uh, well-known uh, rapper, uh, was a Star Wars fan since his childhood, and he'd expressed an interest in reading for a role, even lobbying mutual friends of his and George Lucas to get them in touch um, so that he could meet and do a read. Uh, obviously, uh, Sh Shakur uh, died in 1996 when he was murdered, and this prevented any such meeting from taking place. Um, it has been speculated, though, that he um, was potentially going to be considered for the role of Mace Windu, uh, although, of course, um, this was all long before the film was definitely going ahead. Um, there's, there is some conjecture about whether or not the role was actually written specifically for an African-American actor or not. But, um, you know, people, they like to speculate. And this is one of those where I'm kind of looking at it and going, I don't know that George Lucas necessarily sat down and went, ah, yes, this is the Jedi that uh, the notorious B.I.G. shall play, you know, like these kind of things. <laughs> but it is nice to sort of see those potential connections there. And it is also weird seeing Samuel L. Jackson in a film and just being so understated. Mm. I mean, he gets over that in the next one. Oh, oh yeah, big time. But, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, and then he's he's doing all sorts in the third film as well. So yeah, it's um, it, but yeah, this first one it does feel a bit like he's just kind of. I mean, in fairness, he's playing it's a, a Jedi like a very cameo in the background. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he but he is playing a Jedi well. He's kind of just, I'm here and I'm calm and I'm explaining things to you. It's because um, I don't have any emotions because I repress everything and I'm, I'm traumatized and I need therapy. Yeah, yeah. I, the, the more the more I think about what you said, Sarah, the more I think that yeah, the Jedi don't have a very healthy uh, mindset, uh, and it's not something I've ever really considered before. Um, but yeah, that kind of whole obviously not ready. Yeah, that whole conceal don't feel uh, frozen attitude is uh, is probably not going to help them in the long run. Uh, according to Ahmed Best in a Rolling Stone article, Michael Jackson campaigned for the role of Jar Jar Binks, but George Lucas decided against casting him because his star status would compromise the film. I think that's fair. I think if that alien had been played by Michael Jackson, that would have been even weirder. Um, yeah, yeah, it would have a creepy vibe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, look, I, I just think you wouldn't be sitting there going, it's an alien. You'd be sitting there going... Michael Jackson's in a Star Wars film. And I think the rest of the film would have just been people sat there, like chin in hand going, why is pop sensation Michael Jackson in a Star Wars film? What's he doing? And I think everyone would have just been too confused to have been angry. I think it would have just been a cinema full of people. To be struggling. perfectly honest, I feel like the ending scene needed a musical number so I could see Michael Jackson 
sort of performing a song as Jar Jar Binks at the end of that. So yeah, but they always finish in complete silence. You can't have a musical number when the whole point of Star Wars is ending with no dialogue. Yeah, but this it would one have made the different. whole. It was a, it was a film of the nineties. <laughs> <laughs> it would have made the whole handing over the weird peace ball, the weird electric thing to to Brian Blessed the Gungan. It would have just made that much better if you had Michael Jackson just on the steps singing about how everything's fine now. Heal the world. <laughs> yeah, heal the worlds even. Um, okay, we have some alternate casting. It mostly revolves around the role of Qui Gon Jinn. So I'm going to just read out some of these actors' names. And I just want a simple yes or no if you think they could have played this part well. Not whether or not they're better than Liam Neeson or anything like that. Just whether or not you would have looked at them in this film and gone, yes, this works. Vin Diesel. No. Nah. No, no, neither of you look particularly happy about that one. Um, I could see it happening, but no. <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, just to him, kind of like growling, explaining, midichlorians are made of like just doing the Vin, the Vin Diesel growl is great for certain films. It's not for this film, uh, I would say. Uh, Morgan Freeman. Yes. Ooh, Aaron's got a real unsure look on his face. Nah. 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 That, that's he's okay. More a, I feel like he's a he's a he's a schemer in the background type character. Oh, okay, okay. Qui Gon. No, Qui very much scheming in the foreground. He's saying, "Look, I don't care. This is my scheme, and it's going to happen." Like he's a, he's a bad schemer in that sense. Um, Tom Hanks. I could see that. <laughs> see that. I could see Weirdly. it, but. It, but it's kind of weird, like the idea of him yeah. in Jedi robes just doesn't work for whatever reason. I'm seeing that, you know, the weird tension that's between Qui-Gon and Shmi Skywalker. Like, I'm seeing yeah. that, like, picking up a notch with him. Yeah, I suppose it also depends on which Tom Hanks it is. Like, obviously, you know, Forrest Gump, Cast Tom away Hanks. Tom Hanks with yeah. beard. <laughs> Cast away Tom Hanks, yes. Forrest Gump, Tom Hanks, no. Um, Toy Story Tom Hanks, maybe. <laughs> Just him shouting, watch out, Darth Maul's gonna get you! Like, maybe that would have worked. Um, and the final one I've got on here is Denzel Washington as Qui-Gon Jinn. Okay, okay. Yeah, I have to see people's faces to work <laughs> Okay, that's fair. I, I think he could have done it, but I also think yeah. Liam Neeson, I think, was a really good choice for that role. It makes him likeable. Like, he's going around doing all these shitty things, but you still love him because yeah. it's Liam Neeson. He's great. Yeah. Hmm. Speaking of uh, Mr. Neeson, uh, Ewan McGregor once stated that before filming began, he and Liam were taken to a private room where two Lucasfilm employees approached with a long, locked wooden box. When opened, they saw 20 various lightsaber hilts that they would be allowed to choose from to be their character's official weapon for the movie. George Lucas only wanted to allow them 10 minutes to decide, believing that the actors should connect with their hilts through feelings and not through study. And once they'd finished deciding on the hilts they wanted, everything was put back in its place, the box was relocked, and taken away and never seen again. It's so extra. Yeah. I mean, in fairness, if you're George Lucas and you've, you know, you've had the, the raging success that was the original trilogy, 
and then you've kind of just sat around for 15 years going, ah, should I make another one? Yeah, I think I will. Uh, like you can, you can have that fun of like really leaning into the, um, the whole search your feelings and you will find the right hilt uh, thing. It's yeah, it's kind of lovely. And it's super nerdy, which I really like. Very Harry Potter. Yeah. Mm. The the, uh, the chooses the Jedi? Yeah. Or as it it was called in this (laughs) film, the laser sword. (laughs) Which I'd never noticed before. Yeah, it's never... um, They actually do that in quite a few of them because um, in the original film, they say laser sword and they say wizard. So it actually comes up in this one and it comes up in episode seven or eight, I think as well. So it's a weird recurring thing where they're trying to make it seem okay that they called it that in the first one. Um, Mm. And they should just ignore that it ever happened and just move on with the, you know, the actual language, but whatever. Yeah. I just thought they were trying to piss fanboys off when they were watching. They were like, it's not laser sword. Yeah. I thought it was just, oh, look, he's, he clearly isn't a Jedi. He doesn't know they're called lightsabers. Oh, he's got so much to learn. Um, I also just found it really funny that at one point in this film, little Anakin goes, I don't think it's possible to kill a Jedi. How wrong he was. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking the exact same thing. <laughs> uh, um, the interiors of the palace on Naboo were shot in an Italian palace, the Regia Reale uh, of... Caserta, which is now mostly used as a museum. Um, However, the palace had candelabras on the wall, which had to be removed prior to shooting. One of the curators there to watch that the crew didn't uh, cause any damage to the interior ended up playing one of the the courtesans or the counsellors. So they were running around as one of Armidala's entourage. But their job was actually to go, don't touch this, don't damage that, that's expensive, that's priceless. And I really love the fact that that care extended to the gunfight Amidala and her troops have against the droids because every time a shot <laughs> hit a pillar, no damage. There was nothing happening there. It looked pristine. That was blaster proof marble and it was amazing. It was a beautiful set. Yeah. It, looked, mm. it was a beautiful location. Yeah. Everything in Naboo was just gorgeous. Mm. And I realized that I recognized it from Battlefield. I used to play, I used to play Battlefront. Sorry, Battlefront? Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I feel like it's in that. Yeah, and I was like, ah, oh, this all makes sense now. <laughs> uh, before the look of Darth Maul was uh, decided upon, uh, they went through a number of different designs. Initially, George Lucas asked concept designer Ian McCaig to draw his worst nightmare. McCaig recalled one where a dead yet alive figure was pressing its face against a window during a thunderstorm, staring at him. He used that as the basis, and the result was a portrait of a black-dressed demonic character with light blue skin, dark eyes, and with long red strands falling from its head. Lucas found the picture too disturbing and asked McCaig to draw his second worst nightmare instead. I just find that absolutely hilarious and I think George is very lucky he didn't hire H.R. Geiger to do any of his uh, his set design stuff because oh boy that could have been bad Uh, Richard Armitage is in this film this was something we were discussing a lot whilst watching it trying to find him because he plays one of the Naboo guards um, and we found him we found a picture of him uh, online and he's very baby faced He's so young. And so many of them are. You forget just how young they were for, you know, this film. Mm. 
after discovering that he'd gotten the part of Obi-Wan Kenobi, Ewan McGregor had his first ever lightsaber fight with Oasis member Noel Gallagher. Um, they used prop lightsabers that Noel Gallagher owned and had a jewel in the back garden of Noel's house because uh, he was there for a party the day after um, he, he found out. So I just really like the fact that, yeah, Obi-Wan's first lightsaber fight in this form was with uh, mank pop superstar Noel Gallagher. And that he could tell people. Like these days, if you're in a Star Wars film and you tell a single person, you are fired. You are gone. You are executed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, basically. Spoiler alert, watch out. But you know, you're like, I'm just going to tell everyone at this party. Yeah. Not only am I going to tell everyone, I'm going to tell Noel Gallagher, famous loudmouth. <laughs> it's just, all right there, kid. Yeah, got a couple of lightsabers up in the back. That's as close to a Mancunian accent as I can get. I apologize to everyone for that. Uh, Terence Stamp disliked working on this film. He clarified that he had been uh, looking forward to his scene with Natalie Portman, but was dismayed to find out that Portman wasn't going to be on set that day. Uh, he was asked to act towards a piece of paper taped on a wall instead, which he described as being very boring. Um, he then declined to reprise his role in the sequel, stating that, quote, actors prefer to work with actors, end quote. Uh, when he complained to a producer about how little he was being paid, he was told he would get a present from George Lucas. The present turned out to be a cheap Star Wars children's stencil set. <laughs> Which, wow, that is some shade. Yeah, it's almost like George going, well, if you're going to act like a child, you can have the gift of one or something like that. But yeah, um, that's that's a bit of a shame because Terence Stamp is you know usually pretty good in in his stuff and he was he was good in this as the I forget the name but you know the the, the Chancellor before Palpatine. Oh yeah, um, Valorum. Yes, yeah, he was he was fine. Didn't particularly do anything outstanding, but I believe that he was a somewhat incompetent or not incompetent, but someone who was losing their grip on that power. I mm. guess yeah, he, he played it well. And the final bit of trivia, Ian McDermott, who uh, was surprised when George Lucas approached him 16 years after Return of the Jedi to reprise the role of Palpatine because he assumed they would just hire a younger actor. In fact, uh, he was only told by Lucas initially that he would be playing a senator. He found out that he was going to play Palpatine when he arrived on set. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah. It feels a bit more like an oversight from George, though. Just going like, "Oh yeah, come back in. You'll you'll be fine." Yeah, who am I playing? Ah, oh, it doesn't matter. Just some yeah. senator dude. Yeah, no one important. Yeah, and... just learn the lines on the day. Yeah, yeah, it'll be fine. It's okay. But you're gonna be acting opposite a bit of paper. We'll write the lines <laughs> on that. It'll be all good. <laughs> I was just thinking that. I oh. do have to say as well, Ian McDermott um, was was really good in this, um, as as younger power hungry palpatine um just he, he makes so much sense and it almost makes up for the fact that this film has so much discussions about trade and senate hearings just to see him operating in that world um it, it, it gives the character of palpatine that much more grounding i guess for the despot that he eventually becomes and also it sort of sets him up as um, you know, a proper politician, you know, when he was ruling the galaxy, it, he was actually probably doing something, you know, he, it was mostly, you know, power hungry stuff and destroying the Senate and, you know, dissolving it and all of that. But, you know, he actually knew what the job entailed. He wasn't just some 
dude showing up at the last minute with an army and saying, right, I'm taking control. Like, at least he had, you know, a resume. Which, sadly, is what obviously he might or might not end up doing in a certain later Star Wars film where he just turns up with an army and says, right, I'm taking over. <laughs> just just a thought. <laughs> It'd be a real shame if they did that. Shade. Accidental shade. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that brings us to the end of our review. All that remains is for us to score The Phantom Menace. And Aaron, it was your first time watching Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. What score would you give this film out of 10? Uh, I, w- I would give it, a, give it a five out of 10. Okay, five. So fine, but nothing special i guess yeah yeah okay but i think that's entirely fair what about you sarah yeah i agree i'm gonna give it five midichlorians out of ten um <laughs> it's not off the charts i'm afraid yeah it, there was some good solid stuff in it it's um not as bad as some star wars films but uh it's not the best yeah i agree i i i really enjoyed this film when i saw it as the intended audience of being a nine-year-old in the cinema in the middle of 1999. And I, I really enjoyed it. I've since watched it and gone, okay, it's not as good as other ones, but I certainly don't think it's the worst Star Wars film. Um, I think that's next year is, is what we're getting yeah. to. I, I really think it's, um, I, I think this is, this is a significantly better film than episode two but more on that in 12 months um because at the very least this film um it it does set up the world in which the star wars that people really like came from it does set up what it was that was lost um when the empire came and took control and i think it does a really interesting job of tackling something that is really difficult is prequels are hard prequels are phenomenally hard to do and to get right and i think that there are at least some aspects of this story and what they chose to do that work i think ewan mcgregor is a really good young obi-wan kenobi and his subsequent portrayals of that character um have have been excellent i think obviously natalie portman as padme does a really good job we didn't really talk about her much and i think that's just because she wasn't atrocious and she wasn't the best thing in this film. Um, and, you know, obviously the film gave us Darth Maul, double-sided lightsabers. It, it did give us some good things, but it isn't a great film. Um, and it does suffer some from some pretty glaring issues. So I'm going to have to agree with both of you. I'm going to have to give it, uh, as the Gungans would say, five <laughs> out of ten. Gotcha. Yep. Yeah, it was... Um, <laughs> That was weird, just seeing that. I was like, that, that almost feels like something Brian Blessed did once. And they went, we've got to animate that now. We don't know how to make those jowls flap like that. Oh, why would you do this to us, Brian? <laughs> hey, that was actually Brian Blessed. Oh, yeah, that, that was Brian Blessed. Oh, my Lord. Yes. <laughs> just, like, yeah, that's entirely him. Um, and also, uh, for fans of Whose Line Is It Anyway, Greg Proops is one of the uh, two-headed commentators as well. The one that speaks English. <laughs> well, race fans, we got a great thing today. It's just Greg Proops. It's it's brilliant. Um, but yeah, reminded so- of the entire conversation that we could have had that we sort of texted about when we we're watching it about you know the casual racism, especially towards the beginning of the film. Like that's a whole other can of worms. You know what? We've got a little bit of time. Uh, we can squeeze in uh, racism. Yeah, let's 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 just throw it in. Um, 
this film does have an issue with with its depiction of of race, even though I'm sure that the filmmakers would argue that they're not depicting race. Um, you know, but they but they have picked certain tropes which have racist connotations. Um, the the uh, trade federation aliens have, are speaking with voices which are traditionally voices people use when trying to play um, quote unquote oriental characters and the fact that they they are baddies and only the baddies speak those voices I do think is a problem um, and similarly uh, with Jar Jar there are issues which I'm sure um, Sarah can can discuss here because she's nodding along. I mean I'm nodding along with all of it because you know I felt that um, with the Trade Federation and the Gungans in particular they were you know very much portrayed in a very you know negative stereotype you know the trade federation is a weird mix of um you know someone trying to be a racist japanese trope mixed with someone trying to be a racist uh, jewish trope it was very anti-semitic as well i found mm. um especially with all the talk of money and you know the way that they you know focused on that so they threw these two terribly racist racist tropes together and then you have uh, the Gungans, where and, you know, at one point um, when the the, uh, the Gungan army is coming up, some of the music underneath it was very tribal. So it was kind of like they were the, and they were they were discussed as the natives. So yeah. you've got you've got you know these native characters who are a little bit dumb, and you know they they can't really fend for themselves. Um, and it, it really disturbed me some of the ways that they were portrayed. Um, and looked down upon. Yeah, um, I did. I did find, with particularly with the Gungans, particularly as they were preparing to battle the, the droid army, that as we saw their sort of war-based culture, the sound of their wind instruments was quite didgeridoo-like. Um, the adornments of feathers that we used on the back of them felt like it was taken from Native American culture. And it does feel as though, despite the fact that I think this film is trying to present a thing of, uh, oh, look, different cultures working together in harmony. Yeah, sure, the indigenous culture are the ones that are in the most danger because they have to fight a literal army of robots. But the point is, is that we're all working together. It, it felt a bit tone deaf, I think, in that respect. It did feel a bit kind of like you had white people Renaissance European culture and you had the other uh, very much kind of all mashed in together. Uh, did, did it read that way for you, Aaron, as a, as a first-time viewer? Did, did it come across? I think with, with the, um, the Trade Federation at the start, that, that was very blatant, like it was a, a, a Japanese stereotype in mm. their costumes. They were almost like sort of samurai sort of frocks or mm. whatever and then the accents were i'm not sure perhaps one of the one of the main actors was japanese or or, or something and they sort of because he was that the japanese they went with with the japanese accent but it was it, that it did it was a bit on the nose and certainly with um with jar jar's race as well it that did come mm. across quite african inspired at the start but it was it was noticeable I would say and it was a bit it was a bit on the nose I mean we even have Obi-Wan using the phrase pathetic life forms 
several times in this film, mm. which is incredibly insulting. It's kind of horrific, especially from, you know, one of our main hero characters who's referring to other cultures as pathetic life forms that they just happen to pick up on the way. So, you know, that's very problematic. It is. And yeah, um, in, in all of the other, I suppose, more um, trivial problems that this film has, um, it, I did completely gloss over the fact that, yeah, there are, there are issues with, with that depiction. And I am pleased that at the very least, I can't think of many more instances of that in subsequent Star Wars films. Obviously, the Trade Federation characters are still a part of the upcoming films in the in the prequel trilogy, um, but they're a significantly reduced role um, in, in the same way that Jar Jar and the Gungans are significantly reduced as well. And without having gone back and watched those films recently, I don't think they make similar mistakes. Maybe, I don't know, making all the clones from New Zealand was weird. I don't <laughs> That's That's possibly uh, an interesting thing, but that's that's something to look at in about 12 months time when we look at uh, episode two. But for now, that brings us to the end of this review of The Phantom Menace. Aaron and Sarah, thank you very much for joining me on this episode of the Cinema Catch-Up Club. Thank you for having us. And for those of you listening in at home, thank you for listening in. Uh, we hope that you enjoy your Star Wars Day uh, whenever it comes up, however you enjoy it. If you want to tell us how you're going to be celebrating on May the 4th, uh, by all means, you can get in touch with us through our Facebook page. Just search for the Cinema Catch-Up Club on Facebook, leave us a message, let us know what, you know, what is the coolest lightsaber fight? Is it this one? Is it one of the ones from episode three? Just let us know there. Uh, we can also be subscribed to on a number of different podcasting services, uh, iTunes, SoundCloud and Spotify, all of them there. Just look us up and you can get an episode each and every week. And of course, there is our Patreon. Just search for the Cinema Catch-Up Club there or go to the web address patreon.com forward slash CCUC podcast and you can become an official member of the club for as little as a dollar a month and you get all sorts of bonus goodies, extras, things like that. But that's all for this week. So until next time, now that's pod racing. Whee! Yippee! Bye. You have been listening to a Thought Jar Productions podcast. For more information, please visit thoughtjarproductions.com.